0: Good morning, family. Or should I say konnichiwa? If you're a rugby follower, you know what I mean. I uh, just want to appreciate our team today. Some of them, it was their first time leading on our stage here. And it's a new team with a different mix. So they did a fantastic job. We, we just appreciate them so much. We are busy with our series that on Arise Shine, where the Lord, as they've said, is asking us to stand up and to shine his glory, wherever we happen to be and wherever we find ourselves. And to do that, we're looking at a very real situation as captured for us in the book of James. James speaking to a messianic community that are going through difficult times. Last week I spoke about that and laid the foundation. And today we want to carry on in our, um, in our topic of the book of James and to move through. And we're going to go to James one and verse 12 and move from there forward as our title for today's message is Shining Through Life's Unfairness. So I want to tell you a story that those of you that know us well as a family and have journeyed with us for a long time will know the story. So forgive, you, forgive me for telling a story that you know, but you know, I've only got one life. There's only me so many stories. Uh, 2008 Natasha and myself Friends of ours were getting married and we, they asked us if we would be prepared to officiate at their wedding ceremony that was going to happen on a beach in Mozambique. So, and they offered that they would pay for us to fly to Mozambique and then that we would be there for a long weekend and do the wedding celebrations. And that sounded like not such a bad idea for us at all. So I don't know if we even prayed about it. We just said, yes, we'll do it. And um, so we uh, were going to go to Mozambique in February of 2008, and go and officiate at this wedding, and it was a great excitement for our friends and all of us. And uh, but then we realised a bunch of our friends are actually going, and everybody was trying to find ways to get to Mozambique to go and attend the wedding, and some were even coming from overseas. So Natasha and I felt to offer that we would not fly, but that we would rather take our little minibus that we had. Um, and that we would drive the 12 hours or so to Mozambique, to the middle of Mozambique, Namban area, and uh, that, that we could then offer other people opportunity to ride with us. So we left early in the dark of a Thursday morning or something, and we drove to Mozambique, and we got to the place where we were going to stay, and there were some difficulties, and we had to find another place to stay, and in the process of the sand and everything, our vehicles clutch broke, and gave in. And uh, So there we were in Mozambique, and the the car couldn't move, and I just, and eventually found a place to stay, and we parked it at the place where we were staying, and now we realize we've got a challenge. How are we going to get back to South Africa on the Monday when the wedding's finished, and, you know, how are we going to get everybody else back? But we thought, we didn't want to spoil the whole thing because of this, and we, so we said, Lord, you know, we trust you to do something. And uh, Natasha, as she was praying, felt a particular scripture from Psalms where the Lord said, I will rescue you. So we had a word, God is going to do something, and we had faith that God is going to do something for us, and he's going to rescue us in that situation. So that night, uh, as the car where it was parked, and I couldn't move it, um, as it happened, as it happened, there was a tsunami on the sea, it was spring tide, and for those of you that know Enamban area, it's a thin slither of land a couple of hundred meters wide between a lagoon and the sea. And where our car was parked, because of the extraordinary circumstances, the water rose and it went right through our vehicle. So when I got there the next morning, there was seawater inside the car, which meant half of the engine was under seawater. So no longer did I just not have a clutch problem, but now had a car that was in seawater. So, but the Lord is going to rescue us. And uh, we were just praying, and now we were doing the wedding, and I didn't really want to feel anybody else feel, you know, uncomfortable because of our situation, so every day as we were walking past the vehicle, we would pray, and we would say, Lord, you said you're going to do us, you're going to rescue us, we're trusting you for a miracle, and I would even on a couple of occasions go climb in the car, put the key, put it in, and by faith pray in tongues, and turn the key in expecting that something, God is going to have done something, but nothing happened. And so we had a fantastic time with the wedding and celebrations and everything, and then the Monday morning came where we now had to head back to South Africa, and our vehicle was stuck. So the people that were with us, riding with us, were finding different alternative ways to get home, driving with other people, and one or two of them even booked a flight, and they were going to fly home, and somebody helped Natasha that she could at least fly home. And, uh, but we organized, and people from home here helped me, and I got some quotes for people that would be able to come and tow the vehicle back to South Africa so that it could be, you know, brought back home. And um, so we found somebody, and they said, I have to accompany the vehicle as it crosses the border. I have to be with it. So I thought, okay, well, this is now not very nice and comfortable. But okay, we'll have to do that. So we organized and expected that a flatbed would come and pick up the vehicle and I would proceed the 12, 14-hour trip home. So the Monday morning came and I greeted Natasha and she was waiting with somebody else for their flight to fly back home. And she wasn't feeling comfortable that I was now going to leave her and go through the journey through Mozambique and through the border with people that we don't know. And uh, she wasn't very happy with that, but we didn't see any alternative So I left her, greeted, and then uh, walked down the road to where the vehicle was and waited, and here comes a tow truck. Not a flatbed, a tow truck. A bucky. With a man and his wife in the front seat. And they were not small people. (laughs) They filled the cabin of the bucky. And uh, they came and said, no, we are here, we're going to take your vehicle back and obviously this was the cheapest quote I could find, but uh, my heart sank. As I looked at the front of this cabin of this bucky, and I didn't know what their relationship was like Whether I was gonna have to be in the middle between them <laughs> or on the side, and, uh, but no, yeah, what could we do? So we, you know, hooked the vehicle, towed it up, pick, you know, put, put it on, the, uh, hooked it onto the bucky, and I got in, you know, sitting like this against the window, and we started our journey to back to South Africa. We were about a kilometer, not even down the road, when the driver leans over to me and he says, so where's the money? So I said, what money? He says, no, I don't have fuel. This vehicle's almost empty. Didn't the office tell you you have to give me a thousand rand or something so that I can fill up the vehicle so we can get back home? I said, no, they didn't tell me. I have no money with me, um, which I really didn't. So he said, oh, well, we'll just drive until you know, till the car stops. So I say, and, and then what happens? He says, no, we'll phone the office and they'll send somebody. Where's the office? No, it's, it's in Maputo. So it, it could take them a couple of hours. It could take them a day or so, but eventually they'll send somebody and they'll bring us fuel. And... But the Lord said he will rescue. <laughs> My heart sank and I thought, this is, not, this is not good. I said to the guy, sorry, stop. That wasn't the arrangement we had take me back. So he was angry and upset, and his wife was angry and upset, and I was squashed against the window, and we had this whole discussion here in the front of this bucky, but he turned around, he took me back, and we dropped the vehicle at the hotel resort where we were staying, staying's reception, and he dropped me there and just raced off, and he was now obviously upset, and uh, I didn't know what to do, but then I realized I've got other quotes. I've got and so I went for the most expensive quote, a renowned company that I know of here in South Africa, and I phoned them, and they said, no problem, they'll come, I can just leave the vehicle at the hotel reception, I don't have to accompany the vehicle across the border, as long as all the papers are there, they'll bring the vehicle, but it obviously, I think it costs like 15,000 Rand or something. So I said, okay, fantastic, this is 2008, you know, 15,000 Rand is a lot more money than what it is today even, and even for me at that stage. So we, I... I left the vehicle with all the papers and everything and gave the keys to the hotel. And they said, don't worry, I can go. And then I proceeded to walk to where Natasha was so that we could phone and try and get a flight for me also to go home. And as I was walking down this path, it's February in Mozambique. It's scorching hot. The sand is hot. My plucky breaks. (laughs) My slop. For those of you that are watching from other parts of the world, it's like a sandal. If you don't know what a slop is. My slops break. So there I am, picking up my slop and holding it in my hand. And the moment came where I said, Lord, this is not fair. This is not fair. I am in this position. Because we were trying to help other people. We were trying to be good friends and good Christian people. We could have flown here and back. But because we wanted to help other people, we are now in this situation. And on top of it, you promised that you were going to rescue us. You did not rescue me, Lord. I rescued myself out of this situation. (laughs) I had to go lend money, and if fortunately I have people that would lend me that kind of money, so I had to lend money to get myself out of the situation. So I don't know what rescue in the Hebrew means, but it's not what you are doing in the English, right? And I was upset. As I walked back, Natasha heard my voice as I was speaking loud, walking down that path, very angry with the Lord that He is not being fair. She was so glad to see me. We found a flight. I was able to fly back home with her. We got back, the vehicle was towed back to South Africa and was brought to the local dealership and they quoted us something like 50,000 Rand just to open up the vehicle and to look at all the damage and then they can't guarantee and then the insurance said, no, they're not gonna pay for it because it happened outside of South Africa, blah, 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 the whole story. For three months, I fought with the insurance until it came to the point where one day they phoned me, they said, no, they're gonna, they'll pay the 50,000. I was so excited. They said, I can phone the dealership. I phoned the dealership. I say, you can do the work. Later that day, the insurance phones me, and they say, no, we're not paying for the 50,000 Rand anymore. I get so upset. Natasha was in Burundi at that time on an outreach. I was alone at home, four kids. Life was, I said, Lord, this is not fair. And I didn't even listen to what the guy said. I was starting to fight with him. He said, excuse me, sir, hold on. Let me tell you the whole story. We're going to scrap the car. We will pay you out the full value of the car, which at least put us up in in that stage. We were driving my mom's old little Opel, Four kids, two of us, half broken opal that had a bullet hole in the back. It wasn't a real bullet hole. We, I drove into something. And we were, you know, we went from a, 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 a minibus that we were all comfortable into the squashed little car. But God said He will rescue us. And praise God, so we got money from the insurance. I could at least buy another car. Not a minivan, but at least we'll have another car. Then we could do life. I didn't know that at the same time, some of the men in the church were, were conspiring. And they went to a local dealership for a vehicle and, and negotiated with a local dealership to get a, a combi of a, on a good deal, this brand new one for less than the cost of it. And then they clubbed together, found money that they put on top of what I got. And so they invited me one day to go to the dealership, and I was given a brand new combi. <laughs> which which our family has been driving for 11 years now. I sent some of those guys a photo the other day. It just crossed over 200,000 kilometers, and it's been amazing. So in the end, God rescued us. In the end, God rescued us. But how many of you know of times where you have said, this is not fair. Life is unfair. Please put up your hand if you've ever said those words, or really got close to saying it. If you were a better Christian than I am and you didn't say it, but I shouted it out loud. Life is not fair. James writes to a Messianic community, as I spoke about last week, he writes to the Messianic communities scattered over the Gentile world at that time in the Roman Empire, and he basically talks to them about the fact that they were experiencing that life was not fair they were in a situation where because of their faith because they were messianic Jews Jews that were turning away from their jewish roots and becoming followers of Jesus they were experiencing socio-economic pressure and persecution in their lives they were being frowned upon by their community, they were being ostracized, and some of them were experiencing financial difficulties because they were losing their businesses and ability to prepare, to take care of their families, so they were going through some difficulty, and it is possible that in that situation, some of them were saying, this is not fair. Because the reason they were in this difficulty had had everything to do with the fact that they were trying to be servants of, of Jesus. They were trying to be followers of Christ, do the best that they can. And because of that, life was not fair. So he writes to them, James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life. That the Lord has promised to those who love Him. And last week I spoke about it. Sometimes we have to go through something to be able to get to something. There are certain things that you cannot get to if you don't go through. Soon now in this week coming or so, our matrics are going to start with exams. And you, how many of you know that you cannot get a matric national certificate if you don't go through the final exam in matric? If you find some way to buy for yourself a national certificate, you have not achieved matric. You are illegitimate. You are lying. The only way you can get to a national certificate is you have to go through the trial of the final exams in matric that you've been preparing for for at least 12 years. Certain things, even in our spiritual walk, we cannot get to unless we go through, and there's no way around it. Somebody once at a testimonial service asked an elderly gentleman, what is his favorite scripture in the Bible? And he said, his favorite scripture in the Bible is, this came to pass. And they asked him, now what do you mean? He says, the trial has come to pass, not to stay. (laughs) And so it is with so many things in our lives. Some things have come and they will pass. They will not be for eternity. They will not be for too long in our lives, but you have to go through them. And it seems here that James says to the believers, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life. There's a reward that you cannot get unless you go through. The word blessed that he writes there is an interesting word. It is not a word of a statement of good fortune towards you. It is not just a statement of a, a, we wish that you will be blessed. This is a verdict statement. The language he uses here when he says blessed, it's like you've been to a court and a a judge has considered your circumstances, and he passes a verdict after having looked at all the facts and all the, the processes, and he finally decides that the verdict is that you will be blessed. It's a command. It's it's, like it's a verdict that is passed over your situation. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. So James says, if you persevere, if you endure, and we spoke about that last week, if you stay in that space where God needs you to be, in your heart and in your actions, through the trial, God pronounces, commands, instructs, passes a verdict over your life of blessing. But you cannot get there unless you go through. Then he says these words, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, this is the wonderful thing of when we do what we're doing right now, which is called an expository preaching series. We're taking a portion of scripture and we're walking through it. And when you do that, the nice thing about it is you get to difficult parts in the scripture and you can't bypass them. You have to go through them. Topical preaching is nice because you choose what you talk about. Expository preaching, you have to talk about even the parts that are difficult. So here's a little bit of a difficult part in this scripture. What is the crown of life? He's saying here that for people that go through the struggle of standing for their faith and persevering, so like these Jewish communities, these Messianic communities, if they stood through the trials of being ostracized, of being looked down upon, of having their finances diminished, of impo- being impoverished, if they stood through that time and kept believing, he is he saying to them that there's a special reward for you in heaven one day? Now, there's different ways you can interpret what is that crown of life. There are a number of crowns that are actually mentioned in the New Testament, and I don't want to talk about them. On the one side, commentators and theologians will say, the crown of life is nothing other than the crown of eternal life that is available to all God's people. If you believe in Lord Jesus, if he's, the, if he's your Savior, and you have given your heart to Jesus, then you become inherit. you inherit eternal life. And if you keep standing in that faith for all of your life, you will inherit eternal life. And that's the crown of life. The problem with that side is then there seems to be developing some condition towards our salvation, which we don't feel comfortable with. And when it comes to the issues of these crowns, there's not enough scripture for us to give us a solid understanding of what the Bible means. But there's something being referred to. The other side of it is people believe the crowns that is referring to you to you are, are extra rewards available to people that when once they get to heaven, on top of eternal life. The word here is the word that we would use for a ribbon or a wreath. In, remember in the Roman times, they would take like uh, olive branches and, and, and together you know, they would put it on somebody's head. It wasn't a crown like a king's crown or an emperor's crown, but it was a crown given to somebody that achieved in something. It's something like we had at school, you know, when you, you get a ribbon because you've done well in a particular area. It's this kind of thing. So some people believe that one day when we get to heaven, there will be some awards given of recognition for people that have gone through certain particular Processes in their faith. Now, we don't quite feel comfortable with that because that seems to feel like there's a little bit of works involved with it. So we're not 100% sure what is James referring to here. But remember, he's speaking to Jewish people that that stands on a Jewish understanding of their doctrines and theology. So it must have made more sense to them than perhaps to us. But what we can say, doesn't matter if it's the crown of life which is eternal life or if it's something else. This we know, that our God is a generous God. That our God wants us to have everything that is available in Him. And He wants to give to us. And He has made available to us eternal life and everything else in the kingdom of God. But that He is asking of us. In order as He gives that to us, that we respond to Him by loving Him. And as he gives everything to us, that we give everything to him. And it's not a works thing, it's a relationships thing. That's why I love the fact that James ends here with that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This issue about rewards and right and wrong and enduring is not ultimately based in what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. It's ultimately based in a relational concept of do I love God? Or don't I love God? As we live our lives on this planet, we will be given opportunities because of just the nature of life and because of this world, as as Pam was leading us this morning in our time to say, are we shining before the Lord in the reality of our circumstances? Each of us will be given opportunities to show the love of God in the midst of our trials and struggles, to show that we love God to shine the love of God when life is against us. When I was walking down that sandy road in Mozambique and my plucky broke, that was an opportunity for me to rise up and to love God despite everything going against me. And that's a silly little story. Some of you have faced far more significant challenges in life. The loss of loved ones. But Life will present to us all the time challenges that will push us to a place possibly where we can give up on the idea that God loves us and that we can love Him back. And that will push us to a place, and sometimes people get to that place in this world and they say, how can God be a God of love if? And life will do that to us. But if we know who God is, if we know Him, If we love Him, then something in us will arise above that and say, Lord, I will love you. And if we are able to do that on this earth with all the challenges that come against us, how much more can we love Him one day when we're in heaven where everything is for us and there's nothing against us? But this is our journey on this earth is we get to have the privilege of loving God, but unfortunately it does cost us to love Him. Like it cost Jesus to love us when He came to earth, it costs us. Now again, I can focus on the cost or I can focus on the love and the reward associated with that. But as I grow with the Lord, as I mature in Him, there's a love in me that develops. And it becomes easier and easier for me to love Him because I know Him even more despite the challenges. But now you may say to me, but that's, if you think like that, does God then test us? Does God then bring things across our path to test whether we love Him? To expose the reality of our hearts? Because I may say I love God, but perhaps that love doesn't go all the way, doesn't go as far as it should. And does God from time to time then bring these things across my path? Does He cause my car to break down in Mozambique? Does He cause people to come to fetch me that can't really help me? Does He cause all of that? And did God cause my plucky to break? So that He could expose and test whether I really love Him or not. Is that what God does? And it's therefore that James answers in the next verse, in verse 13. And he says the following. When tempted, when you go through trials, when you go through these difficult times, when you're feeling the pressure, and remember he's writing to these messianic communities that are feeling the pressure of people ostracizing them, rejecting them, and of being impoverished slowly and losing their their ability to feed their families. He's saying, when you feel those pressures and you feel tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And remember now again, he's a Jewish leader speaking into a Jewish context with certain things that these Jewish people understand. For Jewish people, particularly the men, they start every day with a prayer. And they end every day with that same prayer. And that prayer is called the Shema. And part of the Shema we get in in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. And it begins with these words. The Lord your God is one. One. And that's a very important statement in the scripture. God is one. What does it mean when it says God is one? What that captures is that when we say God is one, we're actually saying God is completely content and alive within himself. God needs nothing outside of Himself to sustain His life. He is one. He is complete. Now, our our doctrines of the Trinity gets complicated in that because God is one, but He is three in one. Three co-equal, existing with each other. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That forms a perfect community where they love and glorify each other. So within Himself, God is completely loved. That's why the Bible can say God is love. Because He is love within Himself. So if that is true of God, why would He have to test whether you love Him? Because God is not that selfish. God is not that insecure. That He needs you and me to love Him, otherwise He feels like His world is not making sense. He wants to love us and He's brought us into that relationship where He can love us and, he can, and we can love Him. But it's, not, it's difficult for us because we are so need-driven in our love. But God doesn't love because He needs to. So James is literally saying God will never test whether you love Him because He has, doesn't have that need. It's not part of His thinking. Do you love Him? God is not the active Role player when it comes to temptation. The temptation that arises within you is not because God needs a question answered. The temptation arises because we live in a broken world. And in this broken world, things happen that consistently come against what God says and what His Word says, and that will test me the whole time. But it is not God tempting. God is not tempting me because God cannot be tempted by evil. Why cannot God not be tempted? Because He's complete within Himself. He needs nothing outside of Himself. So what will tempt Him? He cannot be tempted and therefore He cannot tempt. So this is not God on some mission to try and figure out do we love Him or not. It's just that life happens. And every day, every one of us are given opportunities to love God by overcoming the the, the tests in this world. And you don't have to go looking for those. They come across your path. Because otherwise, and this developed in the New Testament church at a stage, and the church fathers had to address this. Some of the Christians were were so loving God that they wanted to prove that they love God. So some of them went looking for persecution. Some of them put themselves in places where they would get beaten, where they would be persecuted for their faith. And the church fathers had to say to them, stop, don't do that. God doesn't need you to prove that you love Him. It is just when it happens, love God. Because otherwise we could feel, well, you know, I'm growing up in South Africa It's perhaps getting a little harder for us now to stand for our faith. We get some funny looks. We may get people that disagree with us. We may have people that on social media talk bad about us. But it's not very likely that I'm going to be killed for my faith in this nation. So my opportunities to show that I really love God by dying for Him is perhaps limited. And isn't it unfair that that person that lives in that part of the world, where they will get the opportunity to actually die for their faith, that God is actually setting them up to get the rewards Well, I can't. Do you understand the difficulty if you start thinking like that? No. I love God. Every day. And that's the second part of the Shema. For the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Wherever you find yourself, in whatever opportunity, love God. When it's easy to love God because things are for you, love Him. When things go against you, love Him. Everything is an opportunity for us to love God. In loving Him, we will obey His laws. In loving Him, we will keep to truth. But our foundational motivation is to love God. And so he says to this Messianic community that is being impoverished, that are being rejected, he's saying to them, this is an opportunity for you to love God. And God is not on the other side of this. He's with you in the battle. He's not standing on the other side looking at you saying, come on, love me. He's with you in the thing saying, by my spirit I will enable you to respond to my love. Because I did this first. Remember, Jesus came and did this first for us. And now he says, just love me. So if I get to love God while I am at the beach with my children having a fantastic time and say, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you've given us as a family to enjoy a holiday, I love God in that. And when I'm at work and people are speaking ill of me because of my faith, I say, thank you, Lord, I get to love you. All I do is I love God in every opportunity and every moment. In James 1 verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after the desires has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So how does trials and temptations work together? A trial is something that happens in my life. That creates the opportunity for me to be tempted. To respond in a way that is not God's way. So trials aren't necessarily temptations, but often during times of trials, I become susceptible to temptation. Does that make sense to you? In the Jewish doctrine, remember James is a Jewish man writing to Jewish people, helping them move forward in their faith in Jesus. They had an understanding that developed in the second T- T- temple period, which is called the Jewish Yatzar doctrine. And in this doctrine, they basically answered the question to say there are three possibilities where evil could come from. First of all, evil can come from God, or evil comes from the devil, or evil comes from human beings. Evil exists in this world. Where did it come from? It can either come from God, or it can come from the devil, or it can come from human beings. In the Jewish Yatzar, the belief was this. Obviously, God didn't give rise to evil. As James says, God is not tempted and cannot be tempted. There's no possibility for him to do evil because God it would be outside of his nature. He cannot do evil. The devil can tempt us with evil. But evil ultimately in the Jewish understanding is present in this world because of our desires. So e- evil in this world is present because of our ability to do evil. And the enemy plays on that ability and uses that ability. But in the Jewish understanding you couldn't blame the devil for evil you couldn't say I did sin and it was Satan that made me do it because the evil was because of that desire which is in me so in their understanding they had this view that I have the ability to do good and I have the ability to do bad and the enemy will come and lure me into places to cause this this opportunity that is within me for to do evil to arise. And that's why we had to have the law in the Jewish Old Testament, so that by the law I could be instructed to suppress the evil and to allow the good possibilities within me to arise, to understand what good is and how to do it, and so that I can become a good person instead of giving in to the desires of evil. And it becomes quite complicated, but this is the backdrop of this. An illustration that's often used to describe this understanding is the in- illustration of fly fishing. A number of years ago, when our kids were small, we decided one of the good things to do is to go fishing with the boys. You know, you've got sons, you've got to take them fishing. My problem was just I've never been a fisherman. I don't think I've ever caught a fish bigger than this, and that was probably with a net, not with a fishing rod. So we would go, and Natasha would say, We're going to get the boys, and we'd pack a picnic basket, and off we go, we're going to go fishing. And I got so frustrated whenever we went fishing because all I ended up doing was untying knots the whole time. And we still didn't catch anything. So one of the older gentlemen in the, in, in the church took our boys fishing and they got to each catch a proper fish because that guy knew how to do it. I, I was lost. And in this period of time, Natasha decided perhaps a good fun thing for her and me to do together is to learn how to do fly fishing. So she bought us a rod And some fly fishing flies and everything. And we tried the fly fishing thing. And it lasted about a week. And it's too difficult. Because to do fly fishing, you know, when when fly fishermen... And I've got some friends that are good fly fishermen. And if you are in the church, my knowledge is not complete. But as I understand how it works is... A fly fisherman is a master liar. (laughs) A fly fisherman studies the fish that he wants to catch, and then studies what that fish eats, and then tries to recreate the bait that the fish would naturally eat, and make a fly that looks like the fly that the fish would normally eat. So they take feathers, and they take all sorts of different things, and they, and they sit there, and they make the flies. And then what they do is they take that fly that is trying to be as close to the real thing as possible. And they go to a river, you know, where there's trout or something like that. And then they stand there and they, they do that 10 to 2 action. You know, where they, where they make that fly hover over the water or with, a, with a line. They, the line. The, the fly either floats on the water or sort of just goes over the water. Because they're trying to attract the fish's natural desire for that food. They're trying to awaken that desire in that fish in a clear stream. If the trout is swimming under the water and he looks up and he sees, ah, that's what I eat. And it's floating on top of the water, or there it is just hovering above the water. Then the fish goes, I like that. I want that. I have a desire for that. And so what does the fish do? The fish rises out of the water and grabs what he thinks is his food. But actually, it's a lure that is made to look like his food so that he can be caught and entrapped. And this is often an illustration to use to describe what James is saying. He's saying there's within us a desire. Since we have fallen in the Garden of Eden, we've become fallen man. There's this desire, there's this burning, there's this passion in us for things that are not right. You see, God created us with desires, and our desires are good. Your desire for intimacy is good. Your desire for, for security is good. Your desire for comfort is good. Your desire for protection, for safety is good. The problem is, there are legitimate ways to give to address that desire and fulfill that desire, and there are illegitimate ways to fulfill that desire. Because we live in a broken world, the illegitimate ways are all around us and they are far easier to come by than the legitimate ways. The legitimate ways to address my desires requires me to have relationship with God and to actually trust Him to meet my desires and not to try and fulfill my desires on my own. So for God to fulfill my desires, I have to yield to Him. I have to submit to Him. I have to say, Lord, I bring You my desires and I trust that You will fulfill my desires. Teach me the legitimate way because in me I hunger and thirst for the illegitimate way because that's our fallen nature. So in us is burning. So we see that fly flying above our heads here or floating on the water. And we have perhaps sometimes enough savvy to go, I don't think that's the real food. But in us, there's such a passion that burns for satisfaction and to have our desires met that sometimes even when we know it's not the right thing, we will rise and we will grab hold of it. And then the enemy lures us. Pulls us in. And the scripture talks about the sin that so easily entangles. And he does that with each of us all the time. And Paul writes in Romans 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this? And then he carries on in Romans 8. And he says, There's thou therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about how in Jesus I've been given a new nature. That when I give my heart to Jesus, when I come to the Lord Jesus and I say, Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that in me is burning this passion, this desire to meet my needs the way I want to meet my needs. This desire for me to have wealth and standing and fame and intimacy and and security. All these legitimate desires that you gave me. I recognize that in me is this, this passion to meet those things on my terms and the way I want to do it. And I recognize that as sin, Lord, and I ask you to forgive me, and I submit my desires to you, Lord. And I say, Lord, from this point forward, I want you to cleanse me from my evil, my passions, my hunger, my burning, and give me your desire. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He washes, first of all, I get cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And then the scripture says, a new nature is awoken in me. And that nature that's awoken in me is the nature that is different, that desires to not meet my needs in the perning passions of this world, but that wants to meet my needs in the way that is legitimate, that God gives, that longs for life, that comes from the place of loving God. It's not that I don't sin and that I cannot give in to these evil desires anymore. But that there's a new nature in me, a new desire. That's why the scripture talks in Romans 8, you can read about it, that I'm no longer a slave to sin. I no longer have to do that. I can now rise and look past the flies and the lures of the enemy. and and start recognizing as the truth enters my life Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free as the truth of the gospel impacts my life and the word of God teaches me my desires gets reformed and that's the process of discipleship and sanctification that's why Romans 12 says you know be renewed by the spirit by renewing the spirit of your mind be transformed by the renewing of the spirit of your mind as the word instructs me I start saying I don't I recognize these flies they're not right they're going to destroy me no matter how good they're they look and how real they are, I'm waiting for that which God has. And I wait for His word and truth. James 1, 16 to 18, my time's up. Worship team, you guys can come out. Just looking around there like they're not there already. Okay, just... Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. James is saying to these messianic communities, he's saying, God gave birth to you as communities of faith. He's not going to destroy you by setting you up for difficulty. He's not wanting to to harm you. He's doing a good thing in you. He He is not like the stars, that if you look at the stars, you see them shift, you see them change, you see some of them fall. God is not like that. God loves you because He is one, and everything He does is because He loves you. And even when you're going through the challenges, you can shine, even when life is unfair, you can shine through the unfairness. Not because you believe that God is setting you up, but because you know God loves you. And He has created within you a new nature. You can rise above that. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, none of you are being tempted in any way different to other people. But when you are tempted, God is with you. And He will give you a way out. You are strong enough. And that way out is what James talks about in James 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, ask God. And He that is generous will give you wisdom. If you right now are in a place or have ever been or will ever go through a time when you can legitimately say life is unfair, you can ask God for wisdom. Because he's not on the other side watching how you deal with this. He's with you in the boat. He's with you in the test. And he says, I have gone through these tests. Jesus says, Jesus says, he's been tempted in every way like us. I've gone through these tests. I know your humanity. That day when I walked and my slop broke, my humanity came up in me. And I said, Lord, this is not fair. But I'm so glad that Natasha and I stood and we held hands together that day on that beach and we said, Lord, it may feel like life is unfair. It may feel like you are not with us. But we know that that is not the truth because your word says it's not the truth. And we remained to love God. And we got some sense of reward at the end of it. God did rescue us. Now, But let me tell you now how I feel about it. Is that even if God did not provide for us that vehicle that we still drive today. My eternal rewards. Is so fantastic. It's so big and it's so good. But I'm so glad I serve a generous God. That even in this world finds ways. If I ask him for wisdom. If I actively deal with my problems and say, Lord, show me what to do, not just be passive and let it roll over me and just go, ah, it's unfair, but to say, it feels unfair, Lord, but show me how, give me wisdom. When I do that, God causes that new nature to stand up. And when that new nature stands up, like this community of faith, we do things differently. And then we shine through life's unfairness. Won't you stand with me? Let me just say this, God is for you. God is for you. He loves you. That love that He has for you is not dependent on how much you love Him. But the more you respond in loving Him, the more you get to enjoy that love. It's just the way it works. But He loves you. He's not against you. He's not manufacturing things to make your life difficult. He's with you. And you may be going through something, but know that if you're going through it with God, He's taking you to something. So if you felt that life is unfair, can we right now just say, Lord, life is unfair, but that doesn't change the fact that you are good and that you are doing good things in my life. If you can take that position of faith so that we can shine in the midst of our reality. I'm Can I ask you just to raise your hands and just say, Lord, thank you, Father? Lord, we are human beings. And so often it becomes so difficult for us. We feel overwhelmed. We feel the things of this world, the challenges, the death, the destruction. The brokenness is too much for us. We don't know how to deal with it, Lord. And thank you, Father, that that's okay for you, that we feel that way. That Because it is too big for us. That you're not asking of us to just be strong. You're asking of us to come to you. To not let go of you. To keep standing in our faith to say, but God is good. And he is for me. So right now, I pray for every one of us, Lord, that our faith will become that little bit stronger, that little bit more steady, that little bit more mature, that little bit more complete, that can embrace all these difficulties and challenges when they happen and say, God loves me. He's doing a good work in me. But Lord, what are you asking of me? What wisdom do I need to practice in the midst of this? These messianic communities were tempted because of their financial and social struggle. They were tempted to rise up and speak evil of people around them and to even take arms, to start a riot, to fight. And That's why the last verse in verse 19, James says to them, My dear brothers and sisters, Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Very real practical wisdom that he gives to say you cannot do things the way you are feeling tempted to do it. There's a bigger way. There's a better way that's available in God. Lord, I pray that your spirit will speak to us, that you will guide us in whatever our situations are that we are facing that we will not rise to our human desires and temptations, but that we will be quick to listen, slow to anger, slow to speak, and slow to anger, to give you space to do what only you can do. And I trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you today and this week as you go, and may you experience His faithfulness in phenomenal ways. I want to invite you to come forward for prayer. If you would like us to pray with you, perhaps you're in a difficult situation and somebody can stand with you. If today you want to say, I'm tired of my old nature and of rising to my own desires. I want to give my heart to Jesus and I want his new nature. Can I ask that you come on my right hand side? Pastor uh, Pastor Gideon is here. He's going to help you to pray what we call the sinner's prayer to give your heart to Jesus. Can I ask that you please come and don't miss this opportunity. There will be baptism also taking place in the functions hall. May the Lord bless you and may the Springboks win today. (laughs) Amen.